ladies and gentlemen, What's up, everybody? This is Wildcat Radio 2.0. I'm Adam Green. He's Brett Barry. And, Brett, the last week or so since we recorded, I guess, I mean, some bad news for U of A happened. Lou Olson passed away, and we knew that was a fear when we talked about it a little bit last week. And we're going we're gonna to talk about Loot and what he meant to us, what he meant to Arizona basketball as a whole. A little bit later in the show, we're bringing on some help for that. Um, but that was a sad thing that happened last week, and... Otherwise, I guess that kind of overshadowed some of the news that happened with Arizona, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the passing of a legend, and whether you're a Bay fan or not, it seems that Lou Olson may be the most respected uh, guy in Arizona sports history for the state of yeah. Arizona. Maybe, honestly, maybe one of the most respected guys across the board in the state of Arizona history, not just sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and like you saw, even like the rivalry stuff. ASU, Bill Frieder had a statement. ASU had some stuff on Twitter, social media. Like everyone, everyone respected Luke. Whether you liked Arizona or liked what he turned Arizona into as a basketball power. He was respected all across the state, the country, the basketball landscape. I know the NBA, they did their thing. I think it was on a Friday or Saturday. They had, I mean, it was Cliff Robinson, Chadwick Boseman, and Lou Olson. They had like a moment of silence for all of them. It was a really rough couple of days for Ugh. some, you know, high profile passings. But we're going to talk a lot about Lou. We'll get into that a little bit later in the show with a guest to help us out with that. There was other news that happened, positive news if you want to look at it. Like, we can start with James Akinjo basketball. He was granted immediate eligibility by the NCAA. There was some talk about – like, the question was, he played seven games for Georgetown last season before transferring. The question was, would he get the waiver to play immediately this season? Now, the Pac-12 said no one's playing basketball until January 1st anyway, at least, which would mean – would make this whole thing moot, right? Because then if they started on January 1st, it's the second semester, Akinjo was going to be eligible to play then no matter what. But if they start sooner, which is a little bit of news that we're going to get to as well, no matter what, James Akinjo can be in the lineup game one for Arizona this season. Yeah, there's there's no way to call that anything but fantastic news for the program, right? Uh, other than me personally already having a man crush on Kirk Carissa, maybe eats into his minutes <laughs> get in to line. this season. Uh, but uh, there's, there's, no, there's no scenario in which having James Akinjo is probably not a significant plus for any games that may happen before January 1st. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you feel pretty, pretty confident about how the roster uh, is going to look to start the season, even if we don't exactly know how it's going to shake out and how those minutes are going to get allocated. But I'm starting to get excited about it. I don't know about you. Yeah, no, I mean, especially because like, it's an intriguing team like we've talked about. Akinjo, too. It's kind of he's not T.J. McConnell. He didn't have an entire season with Arizona, but he has experience playing in the system that he should be ready to go like McConnell was in some ways, you know, and McKinney a talented player. He was good at Georgetown. The questions, of course, with him were was his well, kind of as a selfish point guard, right? He wasn't necessarily the guy that was a distributor, but Arizona, by all accounts, is very pleased with how he's been in practices. Players really like him, it seems like. And when the games start, 
things could change, of course. But so far, the reviews have been very glowing about him. And I remember going into like late last season, one of the things I was excited about, we talked about Arizona's potential for a tournament run, was that Akinjo and Mannion had gone up against each other in practice every single day. And man, we didn't get to see if that helped Mannion in the tournament, but you have to believe that helped Akinjo going into next season. That his growth as, I guess he'll be a junior, because he has two years to play with Arizona. So if you consider him a junior for them, I don't know if he's a junior, if he'll be a redshirt sophomore, whatever. I don't know what his title will be, but he has two years to play for Arizona. You have to think he'll be able to hit the ground running, that he'll know the offense. And he's, ex- he's experienced, and he's a little bit older and a little bit stronger. Like, as much as you like Kirk Krissa, like who has a great future ahead of him, he's still a true freshman coming to Arizona from overseas, whereas Akinjo has played at the college level before, has had success at the college level, Big East freshman of the year, his freshman season, and he's been in this offense now, been in this system being coached by Miller, going against Nico Mannion for most of a season. Like It's going to be a different look at point guard for Arizona next year, and it's going to be a better look. I mean, not better, because Mannion was good, but it's going to be a different look. Yeah, and I think you know we talked about it when he transferred. I Even though I don't think he's originally from the East Coast, the fact that he played a little bit of the East Coast ball... Uh, you know, it's a it's a different kind of game when you're talking East Coast for the most part versus uh, the West Coast uh, style of yeah. play, shall we say? Um, and there's a little bit more of a you know junkyard dog mentality is the kind of generalization for East versus West is more like skill, fluid, you know, smooth games and you know move the ball around, uh, kind of analogous to football, right? Like with the yeah. West Coast offense, is a lot of you know a lot of dink and dunk, a lot of skill-based things rather than just brute force. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that is something that's been lacking from Arizona's roster since maybe Kevin Parham uh, in terms of that kind of true mental toughness. Um, well, and so I'm excited to see that to see that come. Well, Do you think especially... there's somebody that has been since Parham that Well, that has I think that Kadeem kind of Allen was tough. I think Aaron Gordon. I think Stanley Johnson was tough on the floor. T.J. McConnell was obviously a tough player out there. But if nothing else, like from a point guard for Arizona, they haven't had that type of toughness since Kadeem Allen, who wasn't really a true point guard. You know, he was more of a combo guard who ran the point, and they were a pretty good team. But having that type of guy leading the offense or initiating things, being the one, that's Sean Miller's best teams have had that type of point guard. Even Mark yeah. Lyons, he wasn't, I, he wasn't a pass-first point guard. He was a scoring point guard. But that was a pretty good Arizona team because Mark Lyons was tough. Like, you could put the ball in his hands. I mean, we saw against uh, Florida that game. You know, we saw, and I think there was a tournament, the tournament against uh, Ohio State, they ended up losing. But he went down, like, coast to coast, got the bucket in the end one, if I remember right, to tie things up against Ohio State before LaQuinton Ross's three-pointer and everything. So to have that type of player, and that's not to say is going to be as good an offensive player as Mark Lyons was or as good a defender as Kadeem Allen was or as good a leader, you know, facilitator as T.J. McConnell was. But his reputation isn't as a soft player. It's as a tough guy, like you were saying, someone who has that bulldog mentality. And Miller was quoted, too, after Akinjo was allowed to play his, you know, this season, the whole thing. And he mentioned, too, that he's experienced a little bit older and that they're getting a point guard who will come into Pac-12 and be really settle in and be a very good player for them. You know, and the idea that they're going to have an experienced point guard, game one, who has played at a high level in college, that's important. You know, it's, you can't – because Nico Mannion, as good as he was, he was a true freshman. Parker Jackson Cartwright was – he tried, but he wasn't a high-level point guard necessarily. You know, and just really since Kadeem Allen and before then, T.J. McConnell, Arizona hasn't had a true experienced point guard. 
Yeah, and it's it's a little unfair for PJC just because he his physical limitations limited his ability to. Be I a like PJC. Stopper. I think he was as good as he could have been. Right? Yeah, and I don't want to knock him, but Arizona's had better point guards than PJC. Yeah, I mean, well, defensively, there is where I think it comes out the most, or ability to finish at the. Hoop and like Justin Coleman was a good small. point guard, but he had some of the same limitations. He was a smaller guy. Yeah, and Akinjo's not a big guy, but I think he he maybe plays a little bigger in terms of he's a, he's has a pretty high level of aggression. I think when he's got the ball in his hands, which you know if you're if you're a little undersized, you need to have a little extra aggression. I think that's where that mindset comes in, and I think. You know, it's going to be real interesting to see because now that you have a lot of guys surrounding him, you know, six, six, seven months ago or whatever it was, we were concerned where the hell is the offense going to come from other than him and maybe Terrell Brown just like, hey, go create a shot. <laughs> and now yeah. you have, uh, you know, some intriguing talent and pieces around these guys where, you know, maybe you don't need Akinjo and Terrell Brown to just be the guy go in and shoot the ball. Right. You have Kirk Carissa, you have Tabellus, you have, you know, um, Bacho, you have you know, Jordan Brown, you have, you know, you yeah. have talent. And that, but that's, I guess that's the thing. Cause like when maybe the closest comparison is TJ McConnell, right? A guy who transferred, had success at his previous stop, but transferred. McConnell was seen more as a distributor, but not that we all had a good look at TJ McConnell from Duquesne, right? We weren't watching his games or anything like that, but his reputation. Oh, you were watching his games. I was, Brett? I was, I was actually at the game at McHale center when Duquesne played uh, at McHale center. And I distinctly remember being like, Oh, that point guard guy is actually kind of legit. Okay. So I stand corrected here. One person I mean, other the, than Sean the Miller watched him at Duquesne. <laughs> but, so, but his reputation was as a pass-first point guard. Now, he was a good scorer in high school. We kind of forget that. He, he he knew how to run an offense. He especially knew how to run Sean Miller's offense with a talent that he had around him. Like, T.J. McConnell was surrounded by an embarrassment of riches for his two seasons on the floor with Arizona. Akinjo's reputation isn't the same as McConnell's, but his is as someone who has played well. Again, Big East Freshman of the Year as a point guard. And yes, his ending at Georgetown wasn't the best, but it sounds like maybe it wasn't entirely his fault either. And you have to think with a year in this system, and early on as Arizona's figuring out their roles with so many new players, you'll be glad to have someone like a Kendra or like a Terrell Brown who can take the ball and go get a shot if they need to. Because guys need to fill in, they need to settle in. But if these new players come in and start to grow and gel and become the players that people think they could, then Akinjo could then take that step back and be that facilitator. And at least from what we can tell, he has the skills to do both. Does he have the mindset to do both? We don't know. But I tend to believe that with all this time under Miller in this system, he's not going to go out there and play hero ball. Yeah, I think... (laughs) I think the way this roster is constructed is a tell of how Sean Miller wants his basketball team to operate. Like, I don't think he's opposed to having guys have have some kind of shoot-first mentality, but it's got to be within the, the flow of the offense and make sure that you're, shall we say, trusting the talent and, and weapons around you because, you know, let's be real. Last year, at times, it became utterly way too predictable that we couldn't get the ball to Zeke Naji and... Josh Green wasn't enough of a threat to score, and Nico would want to get his jump shot up. Yeah, and there was <laughs> right? no one else who stepped. I mean, and you know, Dylan and, Smith tried, especially in Anaheim. But if you're asking for Dylan Smith to dribble the ball, you're probably setting him up for failure. <laughs> yeah, you're setting uh, up the other team for an inbounds pass. 
Yeah. So, you know, and then let's, you know, be honest about Nico Mannion. His ability to finish at the hoop was mixed at best, right? And he was not necessarily looking for that nearly as much as you would think for a He was a true freshman. He was a true freshman. Like, whereas Akinjo is basically a junior coming into this season. (laughs) Yeah. So he's older. He's more experienced. He's going to be stronger than Nico Mannion was. I I think that's probably true. Um, And I think... I think Akinjo has a little bit more experience of dealing with the the grown ass men that you're gonna face in college basketball more than Nico Mannion maybe was when he first when he first got here and had to adjust a little bit. Um, so I think that don't underestimate that in my mind. Uh, and then you know going to Kirk Carissa, the the big wild card there is, you know he's a true freshman but he's been basically playing pro ball against grown men. Yeah, you know like. It's it's a it's a lot harder analogy these days than it was say ten fifteen twenty years ago with the Euro guys coming over, um, so we'll see. I'm I'm super excited though. I yeah. I, I think the roster is going to be a fun one to watch. Maybe they're not going to you know compete for a Final Four, but damn it, I think they're going to be fun to watch and they're going to develop and nobody's going to want to face them by the end of the season. And we can talk about the end of the season, but it looks like the beginning of the season might come a little bit sooner than January 1. Now, that was, uh, and I don't remember when it was, a month ago, five weeks ago, last week. I don't know when it was that the Pac-12 announced that they were going to hold off on all sports until at least January 1st. But I remember we all thought, okay, with football, that made some sense, although there's now some doubt about that, too, with certain conferences, not so much in the Pac-12 that we know of. But for basketball, we even talked about it. It, might have, it seemed a little premature because basketball is easier to bubble. There's fewer people involved. You know, it's a different sport entirely than football. Not to say it's any more dangerous or safer than football because you're still near other people, breathing heavily and doing all those things that could be a problem. But if there's fewer people, it's easier to do the traveling. It's easier to bubble themselves. And as we're seeing with the NBA, with the NHL, with MLS, the bubbles work. Um, the NCAA, the report came out that they're considering college basketball on November 25th, so around Thanksgiving, which is obviously before New Year's, and would mean really that the season wouldn't, if it starts then, if they can do it, and it's somewhat of a normal season from there, you're not really losing that many games. Now, grand non-conference schedules are going to be wonky depending on what they do, but they're not going to be that far behind where they would have been if the season started on time. Yeah, I think it's going to be curious to see what they do with the non-conference schedules if that timeline is is something that happens. Um, or do you try... <laughs> You know, there's so many variables to try to figure out between now and then. Uh, it's going to be a challenge. But yeah, your your guess is as good as mine. And, you know, the reality <laughs> is, I mean, there's there's some some level of college football has started to happen already. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's some some talk that uh, some of the conferences that had voted to not play in the fall or maybe considering a revote after it went public, which is uh, <laughs> that the, the votes of the public uh, went the, the presidents went public, which I would contend we were chatting about before the show that if your vote changes when it's public versus private, that means, in my opinion, you are a weak person that is should an, not is be afraid. in a position to make decisions. Yeah, um, you are because then I understand the the transparency side, but if you you're basically saying yes, I'm caving to pressure mm-hmm. unless they find some fig leaf of something, but. The scary thing is, you know, Labor Day is right around the corner, and two, three weeks past there, we may be in a different COVID spot. Like, things are trending more positively now in most places, Yeah. not in, like, Iowa, which would seem 
relevant to some of the conferences that are considering football. Well, it shows um, that it, it, things can get better. And the thing, I mean, not to make this a COVID discussion, but there are certain things that we as a society can do that these leagues can do to make the numbers get better and things be safer, right? Like none of us are saying you can't play basketball. No, nobody's even saying you can't play football. It's just you can't play basketball or football in certain circumstances, you know, like with with students on campus. Like the get, the sports themselves aren't the issue. Like you're not any more likely to get COVID playing basketball than you are potentially going to Costco or going to the store. But if you're on campus with a bunch of people, and we've seen some outbreaks at certain campuses. I know ASU's had their issue. U of A was in the news because they were discovering outbreaks before they happened based on sewage, you know, like but there's. People are going to have COVID on these campuses. Now, the question is, can you sequester your athletes enough to where they're not going to contract the virus? And it's possible. It's just hard to do. And to your point, football has started to happen in some places. And I understand that some of these presidents, if they see other conferences do it and do it safely, they might second guess themselves. It's like, oh, you mean this this can be done and it's not a problem? Huh. Because they left a lot of money on the table by postponing things or outright canceling. Oh, yeah. They did. So these schools need these sports. So... I understand why they might be if if new evidence arrives, I don't mind someone changing their mind. Right. Like that's right. the whole point. Totally. That's, that's science. The, the, the situation on the ground changes. It evolves over time. And if the rapid tests are a thing and they can bubble these players, try it. Go for it. You know, and if they're all willing to play, they don't opt out. Cool. Go for it because it can be done safely. Just to your point, like there's a lot of unknowns. And two weeks from now, it might we might be talking about a different story as more places have opened up. Like you're absolutely right. Yeah, I think the worst case scenario is schools try to get sports back in full too soon. They get a game or two in and then outbreaks happen and it falls apart. And then you've made even trying to do it in the spring all the harder because you basically already started a season. Yeah. And you're just left with even more of a mess than you currently have. You know, the, the hard part, though, is different states have different laws right now. Like California is very right. strict on things. And that's part of it. I was like, oh, well, Arizona's getting better. And they've been more apt to be like, hey, go play sports. I think the high schools are considering starting playing sports in Arizona. But California may not allow anyone to play any sports. So it's like, how can how can the Pac-12 go forward without the California schools, you know, whereas like even major league baseball was what the blue Jays had to play in Buffalo right now, because Canada's like, nope, no sports right now. And that's saying where you have these member, these member schools in this conference, if they don't all have the same, I guess, regulations and no one's gonna have the same COVID numbers because every state's different. You're talking about like, I was not in the PAC 12, but they are having their own issue. It's hard to have a uniform policy when the member schools don't have a uniform set of standards. Right. And that's I mean, it's a microcosm of it's hard to have, you know, national COVID success when different states have different standards and different cities within states and different, you know, counties have different standards. Right. And that's the challenge of of a pandemic. Right. Uh, You know, like you talk about Canada, I've heard examples of what Canada is doing for people traveling like they allow the travel, but they're like saying you have to go isolate for two weeks and they monitor your credit card location swipes. Like, which is a little big brothery, but a like, little? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it's, and they'll like send text reminders and say, remember, you're not supposed to leave the house. And it's like, yeah, that's a little creepy, the, but not supposed to leave the, the results, house. Or the hoose, the hoose. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, but and like, let's be real. Some of those things are just not going to fly in America, whether, whether you support those notions or not, but that's, it's, that's, them's the rules in Canada right now. 
Um, and similarly, with the federalist system that we have, there is an inconsistent uh, you know, set of princ- principles and policies in place, and that goes down all the way to the schools. And, you know, the Arizona schools in general have handled themselves fairly well by all measures. Yeah. Um, but you know, check check back after that after the Labor Day holiday or when they uh, you know the first long weekend with pool parties, it could it can change real real quick. But as as of right now, we're recording on September second, Wednesday, September second. The NCAA is considering looking at a November twenty fifth start date for basketball, men's and women's basketball. And I know for Arizona, both the men's and women's teams, like obviously they all want to play, and they each have potentially exciting seasons ahead of them. So we all want to see them play. But everything is kind of like, okay, right now, November 25th for basketball could be a thing. Two weeks from now, it might not be. A month from now, it might look even better, right? Like, time will tell us everything, and hopefully hopefully the numbers keep trending the way they are. And for the places that aren't trending well, they turn around and start getting better, Just not just for sports, but for society and our country and world as a whole. But, you know, for sports, it's just kind of wait and see. But the one, I guess the nice thing is, or the weird thing is, like the Pac-12 made that blanket statement, January 1, nothing sooner. Watch them have to kind of adjust to this. They say, oh, well, okay, maybe we can do it. And I understand I've read some people, too. They said, like, the Pac-12 did that because they didn't want to give anyone false hope. You know, certain comes like, oh, we're just going to do it two weeks from here, and then, oh, we'll do it another two weeks. And they just said, you know what, forget that, January 1, which was an arbitrary date to begin with, but just it gave them time to figure things out a little bit, too. Well, this might be the figuring out for basketball is that, okay, with that time, with another two and a half months, they can make it happen. That might be what they're thinking, and I understand that, and I'm all for that consideration. Well, didn't they? Uh, wasn't there some story that they trademarked like a battle in the bubble or battle something? in the bubble? Yeah, which you know that basically hints that they're trying to do a bubble uh, system, which you know, if appropriately done, works. That we've seen that work. Now, it does it raise questions of if you don't have students on campus, you know, maybe there's a creative way of being a bubble like. Maybe the conference schedule is like a two-week period, and well, they do just like do a, a round robin, like a March Madness type of thing. And the players are taking their classes online. Then, yeah. technically, you can bubble them, and they're still student athletes. You know, they're still students, yeah. so it, it's doable. It's, and, if, and if other students are all taking all of their things online, you don't run afoul of the you know professionalism versus amateurism yeah. debate. Um, but also. It is very like college sports to trademark that because Lord knows that means they want to make money off it, which <laughs> see my prior statement around professionalism and amateurism. <laughs> but to be fair, though, we want them to make money off of it because we want to see it happen. <laughs> like, oh, we yeah. would like to see college basketball and college sports and come back. So, oh, God. I mean, the they can make way. all the money they want. I want to watch sports. I do. Oh man, did you watch any of the Desert Swarm, AZ Desert Swarm guys' uh, clips from the simulation that they ran of the Hawaii game? <laughs> the first one was like uh, the Grand Canal fumble. I'm like, I'm pretty sure, or like, that was like a back. You just turned around and threw the ball backwards, which was quintessential Arizona football. I thought. I I thought Khalil Tate graduated, <laughs> but then like I think it was at the long pass. Who caught the long? Was it Peterson? Castile or Castile caught that long pass? I'm like, it was a good pass. It's a touchdown. He was like six yards behind the defensive back. Just Cannell put a put a bad ball on him. Oh man, I'm not gonna lie. I watched like five or six of those clips, then to like the missed field goal to lose with a stupid score of like 16-15 or whatever it was, <laughs> and the degree to which even the clips felt just way too damn real. <laughs> it like actually like gave me like a little sinking feeling in my stomach. I'm like, oh no, this is <laughs> this is what I'm excited to have come back in my life. 
what kind of masochist am I? You're an Arizona fan. You're the pinnacle kind of masochist. Like that's just how it goes. <laughs> like we know that. It's part of the deal. Yeah. But Brett, I think that's good for the news. Hopefully basketball does come back. Let's take a break and we come back. Let's remember the man who built Arizona basketball. Welcome back, everybody. And as you all are well aware of, uh, legendary Wildcat basketball coach Lou Olson passed away uh, last week on um, August 27th at the age of 85. And we had known, we talked about on the show last week that he was in hospice care. We all understand what that means, generally speaking. We hope for the best, but I'm sure, like most of you guys, we were anticipating the worst. Um, it's a sad thing that happened, and... The one nice thing that has come from it, if you can call it that, I think, is that all the memories people have of Lute, all the praise, all just the remembrances of him have been such a joy to see, to read, to learn even more about this coach that I know I thought I knew quite a bit about. I did not, clearly. Um, Brett, I know you have thoughts. We brought in Ronnie Stoffel too, to kind of help with this because he has thoughts on Lute Olsen as well. And I think, I mean, the reason we all wanted to be here to talk about Lute is because, like, Loot belonged to all of us, right? <laughs> like he was the Arizona basketball coach. He was the guy who built the program into what it is today. And every every one of us, the three of us, all have some thanks for that because we're all Arizona basketball fans. We're all University of Arizona alums. Like Loot Olson's a big part of, I'm sure, why we went there and why we're so proud to be Wildcats. Yeah, no, I and by the way, guys, hello. Hi, Ronnie. And uh yeah, and, and thanks for having me. Uh Adam, I I think all of that is um very, very much true. And, you know, it's it's funny because before we started re- recording again here, you know, we, we kind of talked about, you know, really um, the U of A fandom, you know, Adam, you mentioned really didn't start, uh, you know, full blown until you got there and then even a little bit more ramped up there after graduation and stuff. But um, I, I would say very much the same for me. But now that doesn't necessarily mean that we didn't understand or, or know what Lute Olson meant to the program, to the state, what he had built down there and seeing it all unfold. I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy. And, and honestly too, I mean, living through it, you kind of take it for granted. Right. So like, so I, I was born in 1988. And so, I mean, if, if you look child. even just a child, right. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if you, if you draw the line in the sand, just even right there, I mean, you are looking at just sheer domination really from like 1988, what until, until that, that, that that elite eight game against uh against illinois right so was that 2005 2005 so yeah so so 88 to 2005 i mean it is just lute olsen dominating the pac-12 or pac-10 at the time uh and, and just a national figure in college basketball and frankly i mean you kind of take it for granted like i i actually remember um in 2001 uh the night or so the day that they were playing duke in the national championship game Part of me actually was like, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't really mind. You know, it's like, I think it's cool they got that far. At the time, I was a big Duke fan, right? I mean. Oh, it's been good so having like... Ronnie on the show. Thanks for joining us. Um, his <laughs> mic just cut out. We don't know what happened. Brett, I thought, we were, I thought we were best friends, and then he talked about being a Duke fan. <laughs> and, then, and then that was it. Yeah. You know, um, but but it, it, it's just funny because, I, I mean, obviously, in hindsight, I, I wish more than anything that we won that game because, I mean. 2001 is obviously more recent than 1997. That would be awesome to have something more recent than that, but certainly not 
uh, crapping on 1997 by any means. But but I guess the, the, the point that I'm trying to make there, right, is just that I, I kind of just took for granted just the run that he had put together up to that point. I mean, and then it continued, like I said, for a few more years. But, um, yeah, I mean, really something awesome, very obviously unprecedented uh, for the program. He really built the program, and it, it's hard to imagine it'll ever be matched. Well, and if you think back to, you know, even the state of Arizona in the in the late 80s when he took over, right, was not the same on the national scene as a state in terms of population and irrelevance, and nor, nor was the Pac-10, and certainly Arizona within the Pac-10 at the time, right, took over a program that was uh, not exactly successful. I think the year before he took over, they had, what, like, you know, just a handful of wins? Like 4 um, and 20 or something like that, yeah. yeah. Something, something insane, and, you know, I, I'm kind of similar to Adam in that I grew up here, but I didn't. I wasn't a like multi, multi-generation Wildcat fan. My my dad actually graduated from ASU after transferring from Washington State. Oh, it's been nice right? having Brett on the show. Um, his <laughs> mic is cutting out. <laughs> but, yeah, but so like as a kid growing up in the in the the Phoenix area, I remember one of my earliest memories of Lou Olson is you know, watching him kind of arms crossed, walking up and down the sideline with a little bit of an aura and mystique around him while this team was, he was this centered, calm person, you know, basically directing his, his, his soldiers in a controlled, fun, chaos type of basketball style. And there was just something there that I think for Arizona basketball, for Tucson, and even for the state of Arizona, he, that, that aura kind of brought a uh, a sense of respectability to the program, to the state, to the school. And I still remember kind of thinking of that as like, oh, what is this school down down in Tucson? Like, I didn't, you know, I'm like eight, nine, ten years old or whatever, right? And, you know, I've never been on campuses anywhere uh, when I was growing up. And it was like, oh, that that seems, you know, there's something there, right? And it brings that respectability and this credibility and the confidence that I think the school, the team, the program, and the state didn't necessarily have before he came. Well, it's Tucson, Arizona, right? Like, who thought of Tucson? It's not a, it wasn't a major city, but it became one, especially for college basketball. It's a bas- It's a college town. Why? Because of the U of A. But why do people care? Because of the basketball team and what he built there. And, yeah, I guess, I mean, when did he take over at Arizona? Like, 83, 84? 83, yeah, it was the, actually, I'm looking at it right here. It was the 83, 84 season. Yeah, so... He takes over like I was born in 83. So I guess, you know, in my the duration of my life, Lou Olson was the coach of Arizona. But it was like, OK, they got this guy who was known to be a good coach, but obviously it was a different world back then, too, in terms of how college basketball and coaching and all that was looked at. But he built Arizona into a power. And I know like people always talk about the benefit of sports, right? When a team's in the national championship game, how that helps with recruiting and getting not just athletes, but just people want to go to college there. And I'm not going to say I went to U of A because of the basketball program. Like, that would be a lie. But certainly, we all knew. Like, I remember watching growing up, watching the commercials he did with uh, Bill Frieder. Those are funny commercials that Lute did with Frieder. You know, like, just Lute Olsen was, he was just that guy. Like, Brett, you were, to your point, the, the Silver Fox just calmly roaming the sidelines, always bringing in great talent and having really good teams. And, of course, the pinnacle was a 97 championship run, of course, but they also had better teams probably than that 97 team that didn't make it that far. But just what Ludolson did is he built a program that is a, still a national power, right? It's still Arizona basketball. It's a player's program. And none of that happens without Ludolson. And the time, his ending was clunky. 
when he had the health issues and he kind of stepped away for a year, then he came back and then had to step away for good. But it doesn't change what he did. Like, it's easy to forget that for certain people who never saw him coach or never had any attachment to the school while he was the head coach. We were fortunate enough, even if it was like the end of his time there. And I know like my graduating class was like the first one that didn't ever see a final four team. So like, yay. But like, <laughs> but just the run that he had, Ronnie, like you were talking about, just Arizona basketball was so, so good. And it basically built a college and a city into what it is today and put Tucson, Arizona on the map for people and on a national landscape. And like we talked about before, like just the response nationally for what ha- for Lute Olson, that everyone knew who he was. Everyone knew what he had accomplished, at least to some level. And that is awesome. Like that just shows how great of a coach he was and what he meant to the University of Arizona to have that kind of guy leading their program for so many years. 20 consecutive 20-win seasons. Uh, during his time at Arizona, he averaged more than 24 victories a season. I mean, that that, that is that's nuts. And, and you know, it, it's pretty interesting, too, because, you know, Sean Miller kind of had something similar. I mean, obviously not really close in terms of, like, longev- the longevity of the tenure itself. Um, but, you know, the, he had that stretch there with, like, the T.J. McConnell years, the Derek Williams years. You know, you had a couple, you know, kind of fall-on-your-face years sprinkled in between. But when you average it out, it's just pretty – it's, it's 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 comparable to a sense, but not over a twenty year period. I mean, that's no. that, that's pretty remarkable. That's hard to do. Um, yeah, it, and and again, I mean that that's I mean that is that is rarefied air. I mean, you you get to that point, you're you're talking about like you know the Coach K's, the Roy Williams, and because first of all, who's going to be in a job that long, right? Without bouncing around, um, without getting fired, right? I mean, all of that plays into it. So that in itself is is, is quite remarkable. Do you guys? Um, do you guys follow Aaron Torres? Does that name ring a bell for you? Yeah. Um, so he had, I was listening to it. Uh, I think it was, he recorded, I think Sunday night, Monday, whatever it was. Uh, and, and he, the, the last segment of his show, he talked about Lute Olson. And in that segment, he said that Lute Olson is the reason that today the university of Arizona is the biggest powerhouse in basketball, men's college basketball, west of Lawrence, Kansas. Um, I would love to agree with that. I mean, obviously, I'll, I'll probably side with them just out of my bias, but, but I'm curious in your guys' thoughts. I mean, obviously, we know what Luke did in terms of, of building something, but do you feel that that's actually accurate even still today, that like that, that legacy is still carrying so much weight that, that, that we are today who we are because of him? I think... You know, I think Arizona fans always have a little bit of a inflated uh, sense of which tier Arizona's in um, as like a program. And I've seen some, you know, interesting rankings and had some conversations with friends. I think if you're looking at it starting from the Lute Olson period uh, to today, I think that's probably a fair statement. Um, you know, is it is Arizona the premier one right now? You know, some people could make a case that Gonzaga has been more consistent the last several years. Right. But they. It's it's a, it's a little bit of an apples to oranges situation, I think, just in terms of like scheduling. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Conference play. Yep. Um, but like, who 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 would be your competition for that? You know, UCLA in the '90s had some really good teams with like the O'Bannon brothers. Oregon's, you know, been up and down. Had uh, you know great success with Dana Altman, but you know, I if you really go through the list, I'm not sure there there is somebody you can make a particularly strong case to prove that statement wrong. 
And that and that's it right there. The fact that Aaron Torres can make that statement and you can sit there and say, huh, you know what? He might be right. Whether you think he's right or you're sure he's right, but it's not the most outlandish thing you've ever heard. And that's to Lou Dolson's longevity, right? Because UCLA's been to Final Fours more recently than Arizona, or, you know, they've been there. Mm-hmm. Gonzaga was in a national championship game not long ago, and they've been very, very good. But the longevity that Lou Dolson had having Arizona be in the conversation as a title contender. Now, they had too many early exits, which can happen in the tournament. It's a worst judge of who the best team is, you know, but they had some early flameouts. They had some deep runs. They had some absolutely just horrible, painful losses. The Illinois game, chief among them, but of course, you know, call a couple fouls in the Duke game, and Arizona probably wins that one. But they were there. They were in the conversation year after year after year. Even his final teams, they weren't the best, but they were good basketball teams. They just weren't, you know, top 10, top 15 contenders. So to have that type of longevity, I think that's what you're talking about. How many, all the tournaments in a row, all the times where mm-hmm. if they didn't make it to the final four, the elite eight, they were certainly capable of doing it. Like it's hard to do. And it might be harder to do now in college basketball than it was then, because now everyone can be on TV and the different recruiting and all that. But what Lou Dolson did was unprecedented for that time, especially for a place like Arizona. UCLA at the time, yeah, that's normal, right? Following John Wooden. You know, Dean Smith at North Carolina. You have those things going. Luke brought that to Tucson. Like, he brought them into that conversation. Yeah, you know, it's a, a funny thing we've talked about on this show before, that uh, in the, there was a period in the early 90s where, you know, Lou Olson and the Arizona Wildcats were the team that always flames out in the first round with losses to East Tennessee State and Santa Clara, right? And then, you know, they had had the, was it 87 or 88 was the first Final Four team? Um, 88? Sean Elliott, yeah. Yeah, and then they had some real good teams that were, I think they were the first, maybe the first number two seed to lose in the tournament. But, like, people don't think about that as much anymore, right? Um, Because then they had, they went on to have more success. They had the 97 team. They had 2001 team. They had the 98 team actually, you know, is pretty damn good itself right and it probably doesn't get enough credibility uh when people are looking back at those teams but the thing you know i think part of that longevity is lute olsen and the wildcats were able to get through some of those early losses when it wasn't such a commonality uh in in march madness even and they still maintained you know you know in modern times like you would wonder with twitter and people would be freaking out and saying if you lost as a two seed two years in a row you know, would would that person get fired? And it's a credit to Lute Olson and the Arizona basketball program that, you know, that was never really an issue. It helped, I think, that he made the Final Four in his fourth season at Arizona because then, yeah, the next few years, Sweet 16 lost, second round, Sweet 16, first round, first round, you know, before they got back to the Final Four in 94. Like, that stretch, if he doesn't make a Final Four to begin with, at the start of it, people are probably like, okay, you're a good coach you're not the guy to take us to the next level, right? But like well, Arizona was a different time, and he was so good, and like, you believed in Lute Olson because of that, Demir, because that presence he brought to the program. And I know there were times he considered leaving for Kentucky. Kentucky wanted him. You know, a couple of times I was reading the article, too, that they reached out to him, and he had thought about it. But he stuck with Arizona just like Arizona stuck with him, and obviously each of them reaped the rewards for that. By the way, to go quickly back to Ronnie's uh, question before we go back to good Lute Olson memories, if Jamel Horn's three goes in, mm. is there no doubt on that question of the best program west of Kansas? Yeah, it's <laughs> or one of those final fours happen, right? Like, yeah, that's I, the that's the bugaboo right now. 
I think that it's a really good question because it, it it's really dissected in in timelines, right? So what do you deem, you know, modern era? I mean, if we're looking at strictly, you know, like Lute Olson, right? Because Lute Olson came after John Wooden and everything. Because if you're yeah. just looking at like the whole body of work, well then, you know, you use CLA without a question. But 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 that's where it's like that. You, you when when it becomes more modernized and you actually start trying to make it apples to apples, just given today's game, it's it's a legitimate argument i you know adam to your point i know ucla had those back-to-back final fours in the late 2000s you know like the, the russell westbrook darren colson um, kevin, you know, kevin love, love yeah. etc you know all, the, all those i mean those teams were stacked um but you know those were the years that that lute olsen was you know that, that that's when things were kind of starting to fall apart right like lute olsen wasn't there for those two years that was the Kevin O'Neill and then the Russ Pennell years. So that's a good point. Um, as long as Lou Wilson was on the sidelines, Arizona was that team. Yeah, yeah. And then I, I think even taking this a step further, right? Because this is, you know, it it really comes down to to winning games, obviously. And and we've talked plenty of times about this. And and I know I just I come off sounding like a sour U of A fan, but 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 the NCAA tournament to me, I, I know that at the end of the day it's about winning the championship. And then, you know, you're also graded on final fours. I get that, but but March Madness is one of the more flukier tournaments like you'll ever see. And, 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 and in my mind, to play, you know, like 35, 36 games in the year and have your season decided in one at the end rather than, you know, like, like even like a best of three game series, you know, some, some kind of series um, just, just it always drives me nuts. But, but it's such a fan favorite that obviously it'll never change. And frankly, it probably should never change. Um, but, but, you know, I guess that aside – if you just look at strictly wins losses in the season, not necessarily how the team finished, Arizona has not had a sub 500 record since since Lute Olson's first year when they went 11 and 17. You know, I'm I'm looking at it here like you, you UCLA UCLA was uh, 11 and 17 as recent as 2003 2004. They were 14 and 18 in 2009 2010. Um, you know, I it, it's that in itself just being consistently competitive competitive to great for that long for that long of a span is it's it's pretty nuts when you put it in perspective i mean over over, i mean what are we we're coming on 40 years of it it's pretty nuts yeah well ronnie that's good stuff brett we have a lot more to talk about lute olsen let's do more remembrance of the guy who built a player's program right after this break okay we're back for one final segment here and guys just it's almost like what we're. I think what I'm realizing here is that you can't really say enough about Lute Olson, the longevity, the sustained success, what he built, his impact, not only just on Tucson and the school, but college basketball in general. And I keep coming back to when people think of the very best coaches in college basketball history, Lute Olson is in that conversation. You know, it helped because he got that championship. He's went to the Final Fours. You know, he doesn't have as many championships as Coach K does or Roy Williams. You know, but he's in that conversation because he did reach the mountaintop. He reached the pinnacle of that sport. But then you talk about Ronnie before the break, the amount of wins that he had, how many 30 win seasons. And just he was always scheduling tough and making the tournament and doing all those things that it's hard to do. Like as great as much as we all like Sean Miller, you know, at least especially early on, his teams weren't always great either. Two of his first three seasons were either no tournament or the NIT, you mm-hmm. know, and this was taking over a program that had been built somewhat. Now, Grant, there was that drop after Lute Olson with those two years, the interim coaches' years, but it was still Arizona basketball. Lute, or Sean Miller, this great coach who's done, a, for the most part, a really good job, 
had two seasons where they didn't even make the NCAA tournament in his first three. Of course, they were sandwiched around on Elite Eight team, the Jamel Horn shot. But yep, which I gives think it that, forgiveness, yeah, right? <laughs> but I think that shows us how hard it is to do that. And even we've seen, like, North Carolina's had bad seasons where they missed a tournament with Roy Williams. That's North Carolina. Like, it's hard to be good every single year, and Lute Olson's teams were good every single year. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a little bit, I would argue that it's a little bit unfair to compare even Sean Miller in a modern era of college basketball to Lute Olson era just by the nature of the game. You know, it used to be if guys were leaving early, it would be that they're foregoing their senior season and they're <laughs> leaving after their junior year not that long ago, right? Yeah. Um, which I think that helped uh, Lute Olson in terms of having longevity, but he still got that talent. He still got the depth on those rosters. He got, you know, guys to come in that were the best of the best in high school and says, you know, there's only one ball, not all you're going to be scoring, right? And turned a lot of guys into NBA players. And I think what was the, the I forget how many billion, like it was over a billion dollars of lifetime salary of NBA guys uh, under his tenure, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I mean, even, but even for that era, you know, starting in 83, 84 through 2007, you know, I don't know of any coach or program that won 76% of their games for that many years, right? That's, that's sustained excellence. Even, I'm not even sure if, you know, the North Carolina's had that kind of, that kind of consistency. They haven't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, they had more it's, down it's, years for sure. It's very difficult to even come close. I mean, honestly, honestly, probably even within like five, five percentage points almost. Right. I mean, you're, you're talking about, <clears throat> he owns the second best winning percentage at 76.4% in Pac-10 history, right? In conference history. Um, that is 327 wins out of 428 attempts. And he's behind John Wooden, right? John Wooden, of, of course, just an anomaly, and he's always going to be up there at 81%. But, but I mean, it, it's, it, it's going to be very difficult, again, for anybody to even come close to this. I mean, I... If, if, if even if we're talking about just sheer wins, I mean, where he stacks up, because I was curious to this too, right? So um, coaching leaders for, for records of wins, right? So that is um, within men's college basketball, okay? So we're talking D1 or equivalent programs, right? So this is according to, to sports reference. So obviously at the top, Coach K, no surprises. Everyone would probably guess that. 1157, 1,157 wins. Uh, behind that's Jim Beheim, 1,060. Sure. Obviously, both of them are still active. From there, there's quite the drop-off, though, right? Then you get into the Bob Knight, no longer coaching. Roy Williams, still there. Roy Williams is at 885. Dean Smith, Jim Calhoun, and then you work your way down. Lute Olson's currently slated at 12 with 776. Uh, John Calipari, Coach Cal's right behind him at 775. So um, I know you guys talked about it in the opening segment. There's Does that include likely... vacated wins for Coach Cal or no? <laughs> Um, I mean, we might in, not want to go fairness, down that road either. Yeah, in, in in fairness, I think it is vacated across the board. So for for everyone, but uh, um, but yeah, you know, so obviously there, it's very much looking like there's going to be some form of a season. So Coach Cow will likely jump Ludols, and you know, this season alone, Rick Patino back at you know wherever he is uh, at seven seventy, still chomping away. So he'll cross him you know he'll end up passing Lou Olson too but then you know, you start going down the list a little bit more and you see Rick Barnes and Bill Self 22 and 23 respectively 709 708 and you think like okay well 
So Lute Olsen has, you know, he's still got a good 65 wins or so on these guys, but, you know, they coach two, three more years. They're definitely going to pass them. I guess, you know, all that to say, we are talking the history of college basketball, right? It gets back to the sustained success over a long and extremely long career, right? I mean, Rick Barnes is, I mean, I, I guess you don't even really have to have sustained success, right? He's not in the, he's more longevity than he is quality. And I think everyone yeah, knows that. And, and and that's totally fair, right? I mean, this is the guy, and I might, might be eating words here at some point because Sean Miller couldn't get out of the first round with DeAndre Ayton, but by no means is DeAndre Ayton Kevin Durant. Rick Barnes had Kevin Durant and couldn't get out of the first round of the tournament. So <laughs> also talks about just the flukiness, the the nature of the, the, the tournament. But yeah. but again, my point is, I mean, he is solidified. There's going to be people. He's going to shuffle up and down this list. But still, I mean, he has 776 wins in his career. I mean, it's remarkable when you look at this list. I mean, he is up there with the all-time greats because he is obviously one of the all-time greats. Can I, can I give you guys my favorite uh, stat via a <laughs> trivia question for you guys? So in 83-84, Lute Olsen took over, and he had his worst uh, worst placing in the Pac-12 standings or Pac-10 standings back in the day, and they were in eighth place. Aside from that year, what was the lowest a Arizona basketball team finished in the Pac in the standings? I, During I, Lude's time, I have his yeah. Wikipedia pulled up already, so, so I know you're, the answer. You're, I, know, I know it makes us a fun question, but yeah. I have not looked, so I will guess that they were never lower than four. Their they lowest were. was their lowest was fifth place. Do you know what year mm. that was, Ronnie? Fifth place. Um, would that be like his second year? Nope. That would be 96-97, the national championship team. Wow. See, yeah. how's, I would have never that guessed that. For, how is that for a fun fact? That is a fun fact. Yeah, I, it's, again, I, you know, again, growing up with it, it's just everywhere, being in the state of Arizona, it's just, you know, you just kind of take it for granted. And, and now I, you know, I, I, his mark will never leave Arizona, right? I mean, no. he is always going to be a piece of Arizona, the state of Arizona, University of Arizona, the Arizona Wildcats men's program. I mean, all of that, fine. But, uh, yeah, it's just, wow. It's, I, I know it sounds like a broken record here, but but it is just so remarkable. Well, and can I can I share one of my, like, fondest, just vague memories of it? It was a recurring thing before every game. I went to a number of games. I had one of the half-season tickets when I was a student there. I did, too. You know, yeah. one of the things that I think... <laughs> Maybe separates Lute Olson, the the silver fox, the the guy with the respect of the the respect of everyone and the aura. I still loved that the good Midwestern boy that he was. If before the like right before tip off, the band and student sections would always do their like hi Lute uh, <laughs> in unison, and he would always turn around and smile and wave at them. <laughs> and for some reason, that always just delighted me because he <laughs> seemed like genuinely like he was just like saying hi to his friends, and he... it was it was great. That, you know, and, and I'm going to piggyback that a little bit because, you know, Adam, you 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 and I participated in, in the AZ Desert Swarm Roundtable, you know, like what did loot mean to us and everything. And, you know, we, we've been sitting here and just beating on the stats and just the success that he's had as a coach. But but honestly, you know, that whole that story right there um, really reminds me. I, I mean, it's just it gets lost. But I have never heard anybody say one bad thing, former player, former assistant, former anything, anything bad about Lute Olsen. Um, and, and I think that the most important thing to him was clearly 
building, you know, success. But but a lot of that had to do with uh, the culture of just a family, right? And everybody was very close, and and he was very loving, uh, almost a father figure, right? I mean, Steve Kerr's even talked about this too when he tragically lost his father while he was uh, with the program, and and Lute Olson really, you know provided that father-like figure during his father's absence you know it's just and, and just all these countless stories and you know, richard jefferson spoke about it similarly too about just how lute olson is is just that presence that draws people to tucson you know miles simon he referenced miles simon could have stayed in southern california played at poly you know went to usc could have really anywhere in california probably anywhere in the country and he chose tucson arizona it's just it's to, to me it's just lute is yeah i mean it just seems like such a such a genuinely awesome person, you know? I don't have any real analysis here, but how cool was Lute Olsen, right? His entire presence, he was taller, had the white hair, the silver hair. <laughs> he wasn't a yeller or a screamer on the court during games. And I right. listened to a lot of, I watched a lot of it. Todd Walsh, Fox Sports Arizona, had a great video that he did. You know, Corey Williams, former U of A guy, player, had a great video. It's been fun learning more about it, like how Lute would make practices so tough. So that way, like when the game would happen, and they always a lot of people talk about that's what you want to do, but Lute did it, and then he let his guys play, and they had confidence that they could get through anything. And you know, it's it wasn't always smooth sailing, right? You know, they had first round exits, they had early exits, but Lute was that guy so much where no one was ever calling for him, at least to my knowledge. Especially once I became really interested in Arizona basketball, no one was ever saying, "Well, he's lost it. It's time to move on from Lute." You know, he was, he earned himself to be the coach for as long as he could be the coach and wanted to be the coach. And that's such a rare thing in today's world. Brett, you were talking earlier, you know, about like if there was Twitter and things like that with some of those early exits, what would happen? And certainly Lute benefited from being part of a different era of college basketball. But damn it, he owned that era of college basketball. You know, he did everything the right way. And I, know, I guess there was some issue with the NCAA that was late in things. And he, I think it was just a, just a slip up with something with like, I guess a camp or whatever, but Lute did everything the right way. He was universally loved and respected by players, by opponents, by fans. And that's tough because not every coach has that. Most coaches don't have that, right? Like you talk about coach K he's the leader and wins. A lot of people hate coach K, you know, they don't like how he does things. You know, there's, I guess Roy Williams. I don't know too many people that seem to just have a disdain for Roy Williams. He seems like a Mm -hmm. nice enough guy, but there are so few of those, like a gentleman and a, damn good competitor out there. Lute wanted to win, and he won a lot. But he did it all the right way with a presence that you don't often find. And it's you think back, like we took him for granted, you know, when we were students there and when he was the coach. But, man, that, that Arizona can claim Lute Olson. The University of Arizona in Tucson can claim Lute Olson as their own is just such a gift. Well said. I think that's where it comes back to where I kind of was saying my initial comment where he brought that respectability yeah. and that's and that pride to the school, to the program, to the state, because he what he had that coolness about him, but that that also commanded so much respect. It's it's and now we look at a player's program, Arizona basketball. You know, I wrote about this for AZ Desert Song. We were doing our remembrances of him. Was that in some ways, like what Luke did, has created the pressure that there is now. And I know as Arizona fans, I mean, Sean Miller signed up for that when he took the job at Arizona to be essentially the one who replaced Lute Olson. I know there were two interim coaches in between, but as Arizona basketball fans, we expect greatness. We expect the tournament and we expect deep runs because of what, because of what Lute Olson did, you know, like not every program has that mentality. And Brett, you were saying earlier that maybe Arizona fans have this inflated sense of where Arizona is in terms of the hierarchy in college basketball. And I think that's true. 
you know, I don't think Arizona's, they're certainly not on the same level as like a Duke or a North Carolina or a Kansas. But I think Arizona could very easily be near the top of that second tier, especially if they get back to like the early Sean Miller days or the, you know, the run there with TJ McConnell and those teams. But we have that expectation, and not everyone has that expectation. Like whether Arizona should have that or not, like Arizona does, and you can understand it because of what Wilson did. Like he built that expectation because he built an incredible program that fortunately has been able to sustain without him to a degree. Because there's a lot of programs too that when their main coach, when their legendary coach retires or leaves them, they fall apart. You know, Arizona, maybe it's because they got lucky because Sean Miller was able to take that mantle and carry it a little bit. But Lute Olsen built a program that could sustain without him. And I think that speaks to his credit, too. Like, he built such a quality, recognized brand that even if he's not the one leading it, still matters, still resonates with people, with recruits, with everyone around the country on a national level. Like, that's what Lute Olsen did. And we, as Arizona fans, are still getting paid those dividends because of the work Ludolson put in over his two decades with the school. I think that's a really fair point. And I'm going to actually even take that uh, a step further too, because, you know, obviously the foundation is loot, but <clears throat> loot made U of a, a lot of money, right. And a lot of that money then was plowed into the facilities, just everything about the production of a U of a home game. Right. And so it's almost to the point, you know, Adam, there we're, we're where the whole idea of like, okay, yeah, Loot left, and then, you know, Sean Miller was able to come in, and, and seamlessly it felt, you know, kind of get us back in, 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 into conversations and, and national relevance. Um, I feel like Loot had just done such a great job, and, and just with all the money that's even there today, really, well, maybe not literally today because of what's going on globally, but, but you know, what where we stand with just the quality of the facilities and just, you know, like the laundry list of NBA names, just the recognizable, everybody affiliated with the program, really one, one way or another. Um, it's, it's a bit of a self-cleaning oven. You know what I mean? Like, obviously there's such a thing as a bad hire, but you would have to trust that, you know, there would be due diligence in terms of like getting somebody who's not going to come in and completely crap the bed. Right. It, it's, it's almost like a, I don't want to say foolproof because then it gets back to, you know, like, they well, how, how are you actually Tim grading Floyd. it? I was going to say, you don't want to pull a Tim <laughs> Floyd. Like, it's, it's I mean, yeah. look at, I have a column that's coming out on AZ Desert Swarm this week. And by the time you listen to this, everyone, you might, it might be published. But it mentions how it's tough to follow a legend. And, like, Indiana couldn't do it. Arkansas struggled to do it. Georgetown has struggled to do it, right, when they lost their coaches. Of course, Georgetown coach John Thompson, he passed away too recently. But it's tough to follow a legend and not every coach has built a program that can sustain without them. Lute Olson, maybe by with some luck that Arizona got Sean Miller and not Tim Floyd, but Arizona has been able to keep that going. So Lute's legacy has lived on with a program that is still like Aaron Torres said, possibly one of the, if not the best, one of the best programs on the West coast. Yeah. I, I keep thinking uh, it's a, different sport but i think it's a similar comparison was tom osborne in college football at nebraska when he left you know they were per, they were perennially a top five team and then he left and then they the guy that followed him up went 10 and 2 and they fired him <laughs> and they've not and they've never quite reached that same level of consistent excellence and was that bill callahan know, or oh man i forget who it was but bo polini i think he was more recent but your point though is valid it's the same thing it's hard for schools to go on without their legends, with the people who built yeah. them. And it's important if you can be more than a one-coach program. Lute Olson built more than a one-coach program. 
You know, yeah. it's like the program is outliving him. And I mean, that's we had great. we had two transition coaches. Remember when Kevin O'Neill was our coach? Wasn't yeah. that weird? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, yeah. And then, then Russ Pennell, and, and you know what? I mean, honestly, those guys did probably the best they could do, right? I mean, I know that Russ they Pennell inherited did. some. You know, I I think that they obviously inherited a quality roster, um, and especially at a time when when the Pac-12 getting back to you know the UCLA comment, those were back-to-back Final Four years. The Pac-12 was pretty stacked then, or I guess the Pac-10 at that point was pretty stacked. So, I mean, honestly, they they did a fine job. I to me the to me it's always been like I, I know those two guys technically coached, but that was always interim tag in my mind. It was always it. It's always like Lute Olsen to Sean Miller in my mind. I always forget about that, <laughs> those two gap years. Yeah, I, I prefer to think think less about those years anyway as well. <laughs> right. Poor Jared but tournament, Bayless. Tournament years, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, right, Jared Bayless. Speaking of Jared Bayless, he um, actually, the one time I met Lute Olsen in person, I, I went to high school with Jared Bayless. I'm a year older than Jared. And we would obviously always watch. Anytime Jared was playing at home, we would go watch because you knew you knew what you were watching. And it's like, oh, wow, he's definitely going to be in the league someday. And so um, Son Adams and Lute Olsen drove up from Tucson one, one weekday night, right? They drove up to watch Jared. And that's when Jared was kind of doing this flip-flop back and forth between Texas and Arizona. And uh, the game was over, and so Lute was standing around. Obviously, there's a little crowd standing around him, and that was back when uh, camera phones were just starting to come out. And, <laughs> and luckily, I, I had just gotten one, and I was like, hey, uh, Lute, can I get a picture with you? He just gladly stands next to me, puts his big arms around me, and just you know pulls me in and puts on that million-dollar smile that he had. And it's like, you know, that's so cool. I mean, obviously, you know, at a high school with kids and everything, like you kind of expect it, but it just gets back to that whole idea of, you know, like he was just such a cool guy, you know? That's awesome. Yeah. I don't have any personal stories like that, but like that, it, there's a lot of people who do. It just shows that he was such a great ambassador for the program. And again, like how many how many Phoenix kids did he pull? You know, like in a time yeah. when ASU was still a thing. I mean, they weren't great, but they were still a thing. And the best Phoenix talent was going to Tucson with regularity. That's Lute Olson. He he created the standard. He created the program for what it is today. Those expectations but also the confidence that Arizona can reach those levels. You know, that's because of loot. And I don't, I really have nothing else to add. I don't know. Do you guys have any final thoughts on? I got nothing. I mean, I, I think we really summed it up. I mean, it's again, if I, I recommend anybody listening who was in the same boat as me, who grew up and we just became almost so numb to the greatness and just the, and, and, and just the success that he did, uh, that, that, that he had, I recommend you go back and you actually look at the numbers and put that in perspective because I, I did that. I, I, I do that. You know, actually, I've done that a few times, but it, it's just really insane to put it in perspective and just see how successful he was and what he did for the program. Agreed. <laughs> well said. Also, <laughs> also, I appreciate that Ronnie says program. Not program. <laughs> like that. I mean, it makes me think we're talking about college football when I hear somebody say program. Program. <laughs> well, guys, I think, you know, there's no way we can properly do Loot Olson like justice because he was just larger than life. But I'd like to think that, if nothing else, we provide our perspective on what he meant to us and our perspective of what he accomplished and what he did for the program because, I mean, it's Loot Olson. 
you know, nothing good that you say is wrong. And from pretty much anyone, nothing you say that's good could ever be enough to truly get the picture of who he was and what he meant to so many people, especially those who knew him. So, you know, our hearts and thoughts go out to everyone, you know, who had especially a personal connection, his family, former players who are surely mourning his loss. But, you know, I think we all appreciate what he did for all of us. You know, whether you knew him personally or not, Lute Olson built a program that we're all very proud of and excited to claim some piece of. So, Ronnie, Brett, good show, good stuff. Ronnie, thanks for joining us. You know, I don't know Absolutely. if we could have done that without you. Glad to get your thoughts. And, you know, we'll see what happens with basketball. It might come back sooner than we were thinking, and there might be some more Arizona news. But whatever happens over the next week, we'll be sure to talk about it. But until then, remember to bear down. Bear down.